Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is what the musical equivalent of a five-tool baseball player would be, as he can do it all. He's a musician, singer, songwriter. I can't tell you how many times I played his high-energy boogie blues sound when I was a DJ at WMYT. It's like the original songs, Bad to the Bone and I Drink Alone. He's also helped to popularize older songs by American icons, such as Move It On Over, Who Do You Love, and House Rent Blues, One Bourbon, one scotch, one beer. With his band, The Destroyers, he's released over 20 albums, of which two have been certified platinum, six have been certified gold. He sold 15 million albums worldwide. He continues to store extensively. His 46 year of performing it is an absolute thrill to welcome one of my all-time faves, the one and only George Thorogood to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Lonesome George. Mark, did I really do all those things? You absolutely did, and I was there for a lot of a lot of that ride as well. So, so first off, George, how are you holding up as someone who has been on the road for the past forty six years, and a guy who really doesn't stay in one place too long? How has this been for you? Well, to tell you the truth, Mark, it hasn't really interfered with my lifestyle because I've never had a lifestyle to begin with. <laughs> um, when I when I'm not performing, I'm usually restricted to. Um, you know, the Thoroughgood um, estate, they put Thoroughgood in solitary confinement, <laughs> and they don't let me out until it's time to go play. So I've um, been, um, even though I'm in isolation like everybody else, um, I concentrate on the things I concentrate on. First of all, I'm concentrating on hoping they'll, God willing, they'll get a, a lift on this, this epidemic that's happening, of course. And I just do the things I always do, um, exercise and play my guitar and get in a horizontal position as often as possible. <laughs> so, you know, people that know of George Sargard also know he is a huge sports fan. How much do you miss not being able to turn on the TV and watch a ball game right now? Well, let's get one thing straight, Mark. I'm not a sports fan. I'm a baseball, baseball fan. fan. Okay. Baseball is not a sport. It's a religion. <laughs> Love it. So, and I got hooked on a religion ever since Mazeroski hit the home run. <laughs> So, growing and, you know, I don't have to explain what the home run yes, was. Yes, but growing up, you were a Phillies fan, right, up until the epic collapse. But you then switched over to the Mets. Why did you go to become a Mets fan? I used to say this. I said I was a Mets fan because, uh, first of all, they were terrible. And when I played ball, I was terrible. So there's something there. And, I, and people say, why do you go for the Mets? And I'd say, listen, always follow a loser. You always get a good seat at the park. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So do you remember the first game you attended as a kid? Yeah, it was at Connie Mack Stadium. Wow. Phil's versus who, do you remember? Any, anything memorable happen at the game? Um, not really. I was very young, and I was not um, – baseball is not my game yet. Um, I went there, was an expedition with the um, – the uh, the Boy Scouts or something, and uh, my brother was a boy, so they took me along to tag along. So um, I, I, one thing really I remember, but I saw a TV camera there, and I said, "Holy smoke, this thing's on TV!" Ah, that's when TV was in its infancy. So I said, "I hope they swing around and show me." <laughs> <laughs> but that was it. Was, it was to be in a big league ballpark, one with that kind of history. Was uh, I didn't know it had that kind of history at the time. So, um, very little record. I think it gets dimmer as time goes on. Uh, 
It was a long time ago. Yeah, it's also interesting because I read somewhere that early in your career, you actually compared yourself to Ron Hunt because of a personality trait. Could you share that with our audience? Well, Ron Hunt is, was a special guy to me because he was the first Met to be selected to um, the, All-Star. the All-Star game. Right. And that was something. And um, he was also played second base, which is what I played. He, uh, he, he had only one talent. That was being able to hit by the pitch and get on base. I, was, I said, well, I, me, I could bunt. That was about it. Um, so he was more or less a player that uh, I could look at and say, well, if, I'm going to be the Ron Hunt of rock and roll. Okay. Um, one thing about Ron Hunt, he might have been brilliant, but he couldn't be denied. You know, he, want, he had the statement that says some people gave their body to science. I gave mine to baseball. Awesome. So, all right, let's shift a little bit to music now. So who were some of your musical influences growing up? Oh, some of them? Yeah. <laughs> All of them were influences of me. You're talking about probably strong influences. Right. Like the major ones. Well, the ones who got me into really thinking about doing this for a living were the Rolling Stones when they had uh, Brian Jones in the band. And they had just released their first and second record. And I saw this guy on TV with these maracas with these big lips and tight pants dancing around singing, I can't get no satisfaction. And I said, hey, he doesn't have to hit a curveball. He doesn't have to make a double play. That looks like something to do for a living. Wow. So, you know, baseball fans are collectors by nature. I know that early on in your career, and at least through your 40th anniversary tour, you had artists that you've worked with all sign a guitar. So the question is, do you still have that guitar, and which are the signatures that mean the most to you? Of course I have, still have the guitar. Only They're all signed by artists that I've worked with over the years, starting in 1973. Wow. There's only one baseball player ever signed it. I guess who it is. You know, I, I'm going the musical way, and I'm going to say maybe Bernie Williams. That's a good one. If I run into him, I might know. And one who signed it, you're going to believe this, well, the one and only Bill Lee. Wow, Spaceman. Not a bad one to have. Not a bad one yeah, to have at all. Yeah, that's right. He's, he's tuned into both worlds. Matter of fact, he's tuned into all worlds. <laughs> all worlds, for sure. He's been a guest on our show as well. And he's, uh, yeah, but, but Bernie Williams would have been my guest. But that, that's, all right. So, Spaceman Bill Lee. That's that Bernie very cool. Williams can play the guitar, let me tell you. Uh, what a life that guy uh, has. I mean, here's a guy who played with the New York Yankees in, in the summer and played with the Boston Philharmonic in the, the winter. And he's better looking than Harry Belafonte. I said, boy, this guy has got the life. <laughs> so who is, what's the one signature on that guitar that you just look at and go, I can't believe that my career has allowed me to get this signature on this guitar? Um, all of them. Very cool. All right, so what influence did legendary blues guitarist Robert Lockwood have on the course of your career? I'm sorry, what was that, Mark? What influence did the legendary blues guitarist Robert Lockwood have on the course of your career? How did he change? Well, Robert Lockwood, the, the uh, influence he had on me is his great encouragement that he gave me when I met him. I hung out with him for about two weeks in Boston when I was drifting around and trying to get my thing together. I was working as a solo act. Um, and occasionally he would let me sit in on his uh, breaks when he played at this club. And, you know, after a while we struck up a friendship, a brief one, but... His encouragement was, was 
more than anything that really really helped me out. Um, he he said something very kind to me and said, you know, every time I hear you play that guitar, that slide guitar, I, it makes it reminds me of Robert. And he wasn't talking about uh, you know Robert Young or. Uh, you know, Robert Redford. I know which Robert he was talking about. Now, that was quite a compliment yeah. coming from Robert Lockwood. Um, he didn't hand out compliments often. And he was another one that was in, in, uh, encouraged me to pick up an electric guitar and, uh, you know, get a bass player and a drummer because uh, he knew there's only so far you can take it playing alone. So if anything was uh, he gave me, it was that. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with George Thorogood. So basically, keeping with the baseball theme, you're basically the rookie of the year. As your first record back in 77, George Thorogood and the Destroyers, goes gold in the U.S. What did that instant success mean to you as an artist? Well, the first one that went gold was the second one in 1978. Now, I'm so glad you brought that up, Mark, because no one has ever asked me that question before. It took a sports show... <laughs> Asked me that question, and if you got a half a minute, I'll explain. At the time, I was with Rounder Records, and our first album came out. We didn't have a manager, we didn't have an agent, we didn't even have an accountant. We had nothing. Uh, it was just the three of us, and this very uh, small independent label, Rounder, which was a bluegrass old timey label, not a rock label or a blues label. And our first record went really great, and the president of that company said, Well, come, let's get some major distribution. And maybe we can get Georgia Gold Records. So I put my foot down and said, no, we'll make a record without major distribution, without a manager, and we'll make it go without any originals, and we'll make the next album go gold without any help from it to show that we can make a gold record just on the strength of the music alone. Without, you know, we didn't have a publicity agent. We didn't have, you know, uh, uh, you know Springsteen was on the cover of Time. I was on the cover of Mad Magazine, okay? <laughs> so uh, it wasn't exactly like I was a household name. But that was the thing I'm most proud of is that we could pull that off. And to this day, that, that is, well, very few people, that deed, will, for lack of other words, what we accomplished, has left completely unnoticed until now, until you brought it up. So, Mark... You're my favorite guy in the whole world. <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess the baseball equivalent of the minors would be some of the early bars you play, and the majors are the large venues. So what was the worst bar you played, and what would be uh, the equivalent for you of Fenway, Wrigley, or Yankee Stadium, like the cathedral of a live performance? Well, I'm not going to say what was the worst place I played. That's, that's In this day and age, let's try to keep it positive. I'm Mark. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, for me, when I was playing in those places, um, you know, when they say, well, the, the big leagues to me was being on any record label. When we were kids, we didn't care if, uh, you know, the Mobs and the Papas were on, on Dunhill or, uh, you know, um, Jimi Hendrix was on Reprise. They were on a label. A label to us was the big league, okay? So to us, the ultimate big league gig, would, because I'm from that area, was to play the Philadelphia Air Condition Spectrum. So that was the epitome, and in New York, it would probably be Madison Square Garden. In Boston, it would probably be the Boston Garden. So we didn't ever dream we would ever play there, but that was kind of the, 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 the big one. And, um, yeah, it still is today. Uh, they have a new spectrum. But that was just that area, and people would come up and say, when are you going to play the spectrum? I said, never. I'm going to play there. What are you kidding? i got a three-piece band. We're on Rounder Records. I don't know if that's ever going to happen to us. And uh, lo and behold, it did. 
And when it did, it was, uh, we did it a few times. But going back to that, if that was for us the, you know, the Connie Mack Stadium of, of rock and roll, the spectrum was it. Nice. So you played semi-pro baseball, and I'm sure there are days where you were locked in, even though you said you weren't a very good ball player. I'm sure that either at second base, every ball that got hit to you, for some reason you just ate it up, or at the plate you just saw the ball better than other days. Is there an equivalent to that as a musician? Are there days where, because listen, as, as a fan that goes to concerts, you know, I can't tell if you might miss one, you know, strum of a guitar. But are there days where you are so totally locked in as a musician, and can you feel that? Um, I'm not sure I'm clear on the question, Mark. Uh, and it is a question, Mark. <laughs> Excuse my pun. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if you want to look at the, uh, there are no comparisons to me playing baseball and me playing rock and roll music. And when I'm on stage, I know exactly what I'm doing. When I was on the ball field, I knew I knew, knew nothing of what I was doing. So that was the difference. <laughs> so one of your big hits, the song "I Drink Alone," and I love the backstory of the songs. Like "Foreigners Double Vision" actually was inspired by Ranger announcer Bill Chadwick repeating the phrase after um, during a Ranger game when John Davidson got hit with a puck in the face, uh, and the band happened to be watching that game. So tell me how Lee Marvin inspired I Drink Alone. Well, you know, he was uh, kind of a, a cat that we looked at. He was kind of a, you know, a renegade-type dude, you know, and we admired his work. And, you know, I always admired the person who Lee Marvin was. And uh, I, I just thought it fit. You know, they would say, you know, it, it, Lee Marvin was kind of a loner anyway. They said he had a lot of friends, but he would, you know, go to certain watering holes and strike up a conversation with a complete stranger, you know, and get up and leave. So his, his lifestyle just reminded me of that song. And, um, you know, another thing about the, about the cat, he was far and away an underrated actor for what, what people uh, give him credit for. So we said, well, you know, this is, uh, this is as far as we were concerned in the band, you know, this, this was the man. It's interesting you say underrated as an actor because, you know, now with all these streaming, you know, platforms, they replay a lot of old movies. And one of my favorite movies, you know, from way back in the day was Cat Baloo. And I've never seen that, you know, replayed on any of the stations. And I would love to see that movie again. He was phenomenal in that, actually playing two roles in that movie. But, yeah, Lee Marvin definitely was, was a cool guy. So I loved your last two studio albums, 2120 South Michigan Avenue and Party of One. However, full disclosure here, until I covered the NHL All-Star Game in St. Louis in January and visited the National Blues Museum, I didn't fully comprehend the brilliance of these albums and its meanings. Can you tell our audience about those two albums and the inspiration behind those projects? Well, the inspiration by 2120 was I was asked to do it by Capitol Records, and we were, um, it was a major label, and we had put out a record called uh, the Dirty Dozen, which was a collection of some of the older material and six newer ones. And one of the songs got a, a good amount of airplay, so um, it, it, Capitol Records was interested in me doing so. I, I couldn't very well turn them down. It's a major label, like you say, major leagues. Well, <laughs> Capitol Records to me is like the Los Angeles Dodgers of, uh, of music. So, um, of course, I said yes. And they said, what do you want to do? They said, well, we want you to do it like a tribute to, to Chess Records and, and then the blues and all that. And I said, the Rolling Stones have already done that. Clapton's done it. Everybody's done it. 
And they said, well, we want you to do it. And I said, oh, my God. You're going to get, you know, I can't even play the blues. I know Bo Diddley and Johnny B. Good, and that's about it. Okay? But they, they talked me into it. I said, okay, let's get in there, Tom Hamridge, and do the best job we can. Now, the second album, Party of One, that was well overdue. We were supposed to do that with Rounder, like, as far back as the late 70s, early 80s. We just never got around to it. So the time came, and Rounder was going great guns. Uh, they, they're a major player in the business now. And I said, are you still interested in this? And I said, yes, we are. I said, well, would you be interested in me doing, still doing that? And I said, they said, yes, we would. So then it, then it came about. So you asked about those two records. But let me get back to Lee Marvin for a minute. You know, he wasn't the original guy they wanted to play the part of uh, Kid Chalene. Did you know that? No, I didn't. The person that they wanted to meet first was Kirk Douglas. Wow. <laughs> and Kirk Douglas turned it down, and Lee Marvin got the part. And he won the... Um, Academy Award Best Actor. Now, if you want to see Lee Marvin's best work, now write this down. Write down Twilight Zone in an in a, in a episode called Steel, S-T-E-E-L, Steel. And the, the rap that Rod Serling gives at the um, end of the show, like he always does, is the best Twilight Zone rap you've ever heard. And you should listen to it and play it because that rap Rod Serling wrote really applies to today with the epidemic that's sweeping the world. It has something to do with the uh, the character of human beings in general that will always last, and that you you got to see. Have you ever seen that episode? No. And now you know, as soon as I get home tonight, it's on the fire stick, and I'm looking for it for sure. It's called Steel. Okay. And remember the the rap at the end that uh, Rod Sterling lays on you. And if ever there was a time that the world needed it, it's now. I would definitely check that out tonight. All right, so. You know, I, I can only imagine, again, in sports terms, what this must have been like. This would have been, like, for me... I'm sorry, can you speak up a little? I can only imagine what this moment for you must have been like. For me, it would probably be stepping on the ice with Gordy Howe and playing a shift. Tell me what it's like to go out on stage and play with John Lee Hooker and play Boogie Chillin'. I, I, I can't even fathom that. Neither could I. <laughs> So what's going through your I mean, mind I while could, that's happening? Yeah, I just would look at the guitar and forget how to play the guitar, you know. And I'd put the guitar down and go wander off and sit in the corner and just watch and say, first of all, John Lee Hooker don't need anybody to play Boogie Chillin' when he recorded the thing alone back in 48, which I consider the very first rock and roll song ever because it's, um, it's right on the cusp between blues and the day of rock and roll. Now, he says in the song, it's in him, and it's got to come out. Now, he could have been very well talking about Elvis Presley, which is, it was in Elvis, and it had to come out. And that's what Hooker was saying. And the song is not blues. It, they, boogie is just a different word for rock and roll. And Hooker played this thing, and he played it alone. You know that thing he did? He did that thing alone. I think it sold a million copies as a solo artist. Can you believe that? Amazing. Absolutely. And again, full disclosure, until I went to that blues museum in St. Louis, you know, I had inklings, but no, you know, it's a beautiful museum, really well laid out and uh, just so much history there. And that's why, like, when you played that with him, it must have been an incredible rush. But again, here's another one of those, like, baseball type moments. You have your Ken Griffey, Ken Griffey Jr. moment as you get the opportunity to play on stage with your daughter, Rio. Which was a bigger thrill, you playing with John Lee Hooker or you playing with your daughter? Playing with my daughter, of course. My biggest thrill in my life has always been with my daughter, on stage or off. 
and she is an excellent guitarist. You know, make no bones. She's the only one who can play. She's the only one who can play Jumping Jack Flash the way Brian Jones played it, and she never saw Brian Jones do it. Uh, Amazing, let me tell you. So, like we mentioned, you are the ultimate live performer. You were scheduled to play the Paramount here on Long Island September 24th. Uh, We're wondering what the new normal is going to look like. All of your tour dates through July 13th, which is a date in Madrid, Spain, have been canceled. Um, what do you think that first time back on stage looking out at a huge crowd gathered will feel like for you from your vantage point? Well, maybe there must, might be a little bit of something extra there, but every, every, every time I step on that stage, it's, it's special and it means something to me. You know, um, I want to see, this, this is a sports show, right? Yes. Okay. I heard someone ask the great Stan the Man Museum, what was his greatest moment in baseball? And he said, my greatest moment in baseball was every time I walked on the field with St. Louis Cardinals written across my chest. So for George Thurgood, they said, what's the greatest moment that you have or going to have? Uh, I said, the greatest show we're going to do is the next one we're going to do. Uh, what was the best show you ever did? The one we did last night. <laughs> okay. Now, what is your biggest thrill? My biggest thrill is walking on the stage every night in front of that audience, regardless of the situation. I'm looking forward to September. Hopefully, you know, it will be there and I'll be there. Uh, I know that you're a um, fellow Met fan. You made that clear in the beginning of the interview. It would be a major screw-up on my part if I didn't ask you this. You know, John Fogarty has center field. Will we ever see a a George uh, Thorogood version of Meet the Mets on an album somewhere? You never know. They asked me to do it, it's done. That'd be the only way I'll ever crack into the Mets lineup. <laughs> All right, so now you're also doing something pretty cool, you know, raising money for the COVID-19 fund at Sweet Relief by donating 100% of proceeds from the sale of your bad-to-the-bone bandanas to the COVID-19 fund at Sweet Relief. Tell us what that looks like and where people can get that. Well, it looks like one of those masks that you're required <laughs> to wear today in, in uh with the epidemic that's going on, um, people, they're like surgical masks, but it's made from a bad-to-the-bone scarf. And it goes to Sweet Relief, um, which, you know, of course, you know, I endorsed immediately. And it supposedly it goes to, um, you know, um, musicians out of work, which are many. Matter of fact, I think we should donate it to all the people who are out of work, not just limited to musicians. <laughs> It's very cool looking, too. It comes in pink for women and black. Well, it could come in pink for men. <laughs> I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. That was not cool. It, it comes in two colors, black and pink. So whichever you want to wear, you can wear. Um, George, you know, thanks so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for so many years of great music, some great concert memories, including an absolute epic show that I went to February 20th, 1982, with the mighty Jay Giles Band and you as well, which was just Uh, just madness. It was a great, great concert. Really appreciate it. Look forward to hearing some new stuff. Look forward to hopefully seeing you here on Long Island in September. Well, Mark, before I go, I want to say I live a cherished life. I'm the only person in the world that got a phone call from two people on the same day. I got one from Peter Wolf, the man with the plan to get her with the heater, the boss with the hot sauce, and a phone call from the legendary Fred Lynn. Wow. Wow. On the same day, day, my friend. Wow. Doesn't get much better than that. that? Rookie of the year and uh, Peter Wolf lights out and, you know, all the great Jay Giles band stuff. Wow. Unbelievable. And and if I'm not mistaken, uh, I'm going out on a limb. Was he married to Faye Dunaway? 
You have to talk to Wolf about that. That's none of my business. <laughs> all right, George. Thanks so much. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay safe, all right? Rock and roll never sleeps. It just passes out. <laughs> you got it. The man who's bad to the bone, George Thorogood.